Welcome to this latest episode of the Visions and Tones podcast. And in this episode, I want to talk about one theory, black text. And I mean, there might be a lot of debates as to whether black text is a theory or is a concept or is a frame, whatever it is. But all we know is that it explains a certain socioeconomic status of, you know, the black population. And black text is a word or theory that now has become very common, very popular. I hear it from different kinds of contexts. Few people in the Northern Americas try to articulate black text. Many other African countries, people try to uh, articulate black text. And I mean, the purpose of this episode is not to sort of point out whether their articulation of black text is accurate or not. I don't think that is sort of um, a task that I want to sort of bestow on myself to try to articulate that. However, I want to speak about black text from the context of South Africa. But at the same time, I know that the phrase black text in itself might make certain people's furthers to be a little bit ruffled. And God knows for whatever reasons why they become ruffled. Perhaps the tag word black is the one that sort of makes people feel like, oh, everything again has been turned into race again. But again, I want to point out the fact that it is possible for people to not really comprehend what black text is and therefore criticize it from a space of, you know, just a lot of information or being misinformed or whatever the case. And again, it is possible that people might have heard about black text being argued by, you know, secondary sources or whatsoever. And because of that reason, then they feel like black text is a notion that they shouldn't sort of ascribe to. And failure to sort of visit or revisit the original works of where black text emerged, you know, um, reasons behind it, the, you know, intellectual structures of it. I mean, failures to do that might result in, you know, criticizing the concept and thinking that it does not make sense at all. And that's not actually fair in a scholarly engagement, so to say. We've seen the same things happening in so many other theories, you know, thinking of uh, Professor Kimball Crenshaw's work on critical race theory and intersectionality, which basically came from a legalistic framework or a legal framework. And today it's work that has been adopted in different kinds of disciplines, especially in the humanities. And you may find people criticizing critical race theory that has sort of been used in either a feminist framework, in, you, know, you know, in conjunction with a feminist framework. The main reason might be that people dislike feminism and then they start to sort of think that critical race or intersectionality in itself is inherently bad. I don't think that's also a very great thing in a scholarly level. And the same could be done with anti-racism coming from uh, Ibrahim X. Kendi. You know, a lot of things basically happen. So for the sake of today's conversation, I'm arguing black text from the context of South Africa, which I believe the theory emerged from there or it's much more prevalent there and what i'll be doing is to sort of point out how black text basically link to the history of the past and the current context and perhaps in your own spare time you might sort of find a way to envision it and how it is going to be in the future 
So I'm going to try to do this in a space of less than 30 minutes. I'm about almost five minutes down at this moment, but let's see what we can do and what we can come out with. So in accounting, the term tax um, is sort of known as a compulsory contribution to the state revenue, which is collected from, you know, employees, um, or it might be even from their own businesses, you know, where they make profit. But in the context of black tax, tax actually does not, is not money that is paid to state revenue, but this is actually money that goes into families or communities. And, you know, black tax is best understood as a moral obligation, which is levied by family or community members, especially from the poor working class on individuals who recently advanced to the middle class status within their families or communities. So this payment is not in a way always in a form of monies. It might be, you know, in indirect kind of acts such as, you know, purchasing a new house or buying groceries or renovating an, a house, a family house, so to say. Or it might be giving somebody taxi fare money, you know, it might stretch forth to many other different things. But the whole bigger point is that you who sort of advance into the working class status, you assume breadwinner roles into your families and you're expected to do a lot of things because everybody just assumes that you've made it in life and you are moneyed. However, you know, there's many commentators of, you know, um, Black tax will sort of leave out the aspect of one being able to sort of give back to the community. And I think black tax also should be viewed in that context. Some of those who come from spaces that embraces collectivism, they know very well that in the townships or in the rural areas, very often you become the pride of the area or the pride of the location that finally you've completed your studies, you're now working. But at the same time, it has the burden of people thinking that you are moneyed, where they can ask, you know, for money from you. If they're short of money to buy bread, you might become the, you know, point of contact. If you be, if, if they're short of money for taxi fare to the cities, you might become a point of contact. Or even if they, you know, need just money for cigarettes, you might become, you know, a point of contact. And very often the pressure of having to act positively in that comes with the fact that refusal to give them money, you know, you wouldn't know. You might become a target of, you know, um, crime or you might even become a target of, you know, witchcraft for some people. But I think the aspect of community has to be brought in, especially for those who grew up in spaces that really embraces collectivism as opposed to individualism. But again, you know, black text um, has so many different complexities, as I said, where some people might think of it only in the context of breadwinner role without thinking of it also from the perspective of, of what happens when you are a student, right? So it can be that when you're a student, you also experience black tax in a sense that those who studies with bursaries or scholarships, they often take their money, you know, from bursary scholarship and share it with people back home because there's just poverty at home. And some, you may find that black tax affects them to the point that instead of choosing you know, higher careers, they might end up choosing very cheaper careers or lower careers because it's cheaper to pay them. Or instead of going 
to expensive institutions, they might end up going to cheap institutions. Or even in a context of, um, you know, rather choosing to do a diploma as opposed to doing a degree because degrees are highly expensive. So there's too many things to consider basically about black text. But within the broader scheme of things or in terms of the debates and the views of black text, what we need to know is that there's different contestations. Even in South Africa, the term is highly contested, even though it is known even by government officials and it's used here and there. But there are different views. Basically, the one aspect of it is that black text should not be viewed as a burden, but it should be viewed as an act of Ubuntu, which Ubuntu is an African philosophy, for those who don't know it, basically meaning humanity. But I've got a problem with the use of Ubuntu today because I think it has become sort of a buzzword where it is used to sort of police people's emotions, do not act like this because you have to sort of project Ubuntu or it often makes people to feel like you cannot complain about this because this is an act of generosity. But the problem with it is that Ubuntu and in the way in which it is weaponized today or exploited today has become so much of a negative, you know, frame or phrase in so many ways. Because now we push people to sort of what I would call forced humanity. And I don't think people should be pushed to towards doing forced humanity. People should be acting out humanity out of the generosity of their, of their hearts. And this often happens because people feel like your family raised you, this so-and-so raised you, um, your parents raised you, therefore you should get them this, you should get them that, you should show gratitude to them. I don't think we should use the word you should or you must. I mean, if your parents raised you well, you'll know how to do good in a sense that you don't even feel any kind of pressure and you don't feel like this is an obligation. But the shoes and the whatnot basically to me suggest the fact that it might be your fault for existing and that's not how we should view life. Your parents brought you to life. It's their responsibility to look after you. If you happen to do good for them, blessed is you. And I really mean it. So the other aspects of the debate is the one that basically view black tax as a burden. And I think for the you know, scope of today, I will talk more about black tax as a burden. Um, I want to give more air, more space to those kind of you know, arguments, so to say. And here, to argue black tax as a burden, I think it should not sort of, we should not argue black tax as a standalone, but we should argue in tandem to you know, the economic outcome of the black population initiated by the colonial and the apartheid regime. So basically, we should argue black tax in tandem with the history of the past and how the past basically informs the now and how the now basically takes us to the future. So when I speak of the now, as I've already alluded about the history of colonization and apartheid, is something that I'll sort of make more reference to. With the now, I would love for us to sort of think quite a lot about um, the neoliberal globalization, which has become more of a global, you know, trend, global policies governing the world, the so-called pushing of, you know, fair trade as if fair trade is really fair trade. But for those who really engage literature on neoliberal globalization, they would know that there's actually even negative aspects of it. And the extent to which neoliberal governments often employ authoritarian um, force authoritarian repressions against dissident groups and so on and so forth. Therefore, 
you know, clamping down different kinds of activisms and so on and so forth. But in the context of the past, I just want to give about three different kinds of policies. There's too many policies, but I want to give just three of them that I think informs black text in the context of South Africa and how it links to the past. And the first one, I want to speak about the 1913 Native uh, Land Act that basically saw thousands of black families forcefully removed from their land by the apartheid government. This actually is very much more important because land in the contemporary times is seen as you know, quite great investment. Property is seen as quite great, you know, investment. But what is property if it's not situated on land? That's something else that can be debated, you know, alongside this very same topic. But it reminds me of one, you know, lecture or talk which was given by Thomas Piketty, who's one of the world's, you know, renowned uh, economists who I think he wrote the book about, you know, the power of capital, if I'm not mistaken, uh, stand corrected about that. But Piketty gave a talk in, the Nels, in one of you know, Nelson Mandela's lecture, and he actually made the statement that when South Africa was gaining political power with Nelson Mandela, it was such a great thing, but they were very shocked as Europe to see the fact that Mandela was not sort of touching the aspect of land. Because to them, it was already apparent that land is um, uh, important for economic freedom. And today, it's the same thing that we can talk about in the context of South Africa, where the entire land, you find that about less than 10% of the population, being the minority white people, are actually in ownership of over probably 70, 80% of the land in South Africa. And this actually, you know, being indicative as to why it's still more of a problem for many black, you know, South Africans to make it in terms of, you know, family wealth, because there's no properties and so on and so forth, or there's no land either to do agriculture or for property purposes and so on and so forth. And this is something that the past even the now, you know, still speaks to one another. The second thing or policy that I want to refer to is the Bantu Education Act of 1953 that separated education of the white people and black people. And here we see the apartheid legislation sort of authorizing the reservation of many skilled jobs and managerial positions for whites you know, where qualified black people were legally excluded from most senior level jobs. And at the same time, this pushing many black people to unschooled labor market, which was imbued with exploitation and alienation. And alongside that, you know, what we can argue in terms of today is that we see similarities happening in higher education where, you know, this underfunding of historically black institutions uh, compared to historically white institutions. And as a result, black children who made it or black kids who made it into institutional, into historically black institutions, they sort of experience challenges of employment and different to, you know, kids who make it into historically white institutions. And that's something also that sort of still needs to be addressed in the context of South Africa. The third policy that I want to speak about is the one which was initiated in 1924 by JBM Herzog, uh, which this was called the segregationist labor policies that basically favored and protected white employment opportunities and later determined the wage gap between blacks and whites with white people earning higher than black people. I mean, this policy even today is still very much apparent. The, the, the South African constitution doesn't state this, but the act in itself is still apparent. If you look at statistics, South Africa 
from around 2015 all the way up, you know, you'll see that every time yearly reports point out that white people still earn higher than black people in the context of South Africa. And I mean, this thing still sort of echoes things which were happening in the colonial times. And this also appeared in the report, which was actually tabled by the World Bank around March 2022. And the report stated this, South Africa is the most unequal country in the world, with race placing a determining factor in a society where 10% of the population owns more than 80% of the wealth. I mean, think about this. These things are still happening today. Now, you might be asking the question or you might be asking yourself, but whose fault is it that this thing is happening today? Or say, what more about the fact that South Africa now has a black government and there's corruption? You know, I mean, some of these questions are good, are relevant, and they need, you know, genuine responses. But again, the same way that these questions are asked, you know, the reasons behind that, I think it's as important at the same time. Because if they are being asked solemnly with the intent to dismiss people's lived experiences or as a counter to black text narrative, then I can say I am worried. But if they are asked to sort of point out that though the country with the black government is experiencing, you know, issues around black text, with the litter that is available or with the little resources that are there now, you know, more should be done to alleviate poverty than going into corruption. Then I can say I definitely agree. That's a very brilliant point that one can actually make. But then we may not need to end there. We may need to also question ourselves. You know, can we think about the fact that South Africa at the moment is less than 30 years into democracy, you know? But can we compare a three-decade um, history you know, of, you know, South Africa in the hands of black people, along with, you know, history of the, of the 1650s coming all the way to the early 1990s. I think there should be a bit of logic there. But when we do that, can we do that alongside also thinking about the role of the so-called um, free trade policies, the so-called neoliberal policies, which are, I think, and also literature has pointed out that in former colonies, you know, uh, neoliberalism has actually been, you know, showing phases of a neo-colonial kind of structure, which this should actually make us question whether can we say, you know, colonialism is completely dead, um, you know, or can we argue that the absence of a direct, you know, colonial administration basically means that colonization is dead. That might be something else that we need to think of, you know, especially because, you're looking at South Africa, you discover that there's still, you know, issues around paying back of debts, you know, some of the debts are sort of, you know, those that are were founded or formulated by the colonial apartheid regime, or you think more about evergreen policies that even up to today, they continue sort of um, enriching the whites as opposed to the black, you know, community or the black population. And this happens even, you know, after the UN's 1977 Geneva Convention basically declared apartheid as a crime against humanity. So we may need to think about all those things as to whether really did colonization completely die or did the structures completely die. And part of the things that draws us closer to the responses, such as those, is if one engages work on decoloniality and um, 
there I am again giving you other word to sort of look at because I think the works of decoloniality sort of work to point to us on how there's still coloniality of being, there's still coloniality of um, um, power and so on and so forth that exists within different contexts. And if you engage the works of Professor Walter Mignolo and Anibal Quiano, who are basically writing from the Latin America, and also consider the works of Professor Sabelo Ndlovukajeni, who writes a lot you know, from the context of South Africa and many others. But again, other works that sort of align with decoloniality that one might need to sort of engage involves, you know, the works of Franz Fanon on the zone of being and the zone of non-being, or even Ramon Grossvogel's work on racism. And while you do that, you might need to sort of explore more, you know, aspects of institutional and systemic racism, which those are still very apparent in the context of South Africa. And I think you won't be able to understand institutional and systemic racism if you don't understand what racism is. Or if you are in denial of the fact that, you know, social patterns keep on changing and because they keep on changing, therefore the definition of racism too might sort of begin to take a different shape. It, it cannot remain static, so to say. Because there's many people who put the argument that, you know, racism, the definition today is more about shifting the goalposts. I don't think it's about shifting the goalposts. I think we need to move beyond just understanding racism from the context of color racism. And therefore, we'll be able to move forward in understanding what institutional racism is and what systemic racism is. Now, I've moved further away, but I think I'm not moving further away as a complete deviance. What I'm trying to sort of drive home here is that we need to sort of understand that in the context of South Africa, you know, black text cannot be argued as a standalone. It should be argued in tandem to the history of the past, the colonial apartheid regime, you know, and also argue on how the past has birthed the now and how the now, you know, that sort of parades itself within the frames of neoliberal globalization sort of continues to overlook. So here's another aspect of why I mentioned that you know, neoliberalism can be a neocolonial, you know, structures because it continues to overlook the history of the past and the fact that the certain people, that the so-called free trade for them might be the hardest thing to ever achieve. For instance, banks still, you know, operate through red taping where most, you know, black South Africans, whenever they have to apply for business loans, they are more likely to be declined as opposed to if they apply um uh, vehicle loan and you know when you apply for a vehicle loan you just drive a car from point A to point B there's already high depreciation and also how very often it's difficult to sort of get loans for properties and another thing that you might need to sort of look at is the history of banks in South Africa and whether banks are still state owned or banks are privately owned which in the context of South Africa most banks are privately owned and this explains why it's sort of difficult even for black South Africans to make it into the system so there's many things that one needs to consider in this case when you argue black text and I don't know how it looks in different contexts but in the context of South Africa it's really really very much loaded now there are a few things that I needed to sort of capture out of, out of this you know a uh, few letters that I've said so far and the first thing is that you know main argument is the fact that we need to sort of question whether there is a financial liberation or a permanent with holding of future aspirations for black people because for black young people because they assume breadwinner roles in their families or basically in short they are bound by the so-called black text and point two is to sort of agree we need to point out 
um, that the higher the inflation rate or the higher the cost of living basically means the higher black tax that people are likely to experience. And this becomes even more difficult for people to achieve family wealth. Part of this argument is actually one that came out from my um, PhD thesis where students pointed out that it was unfair that university fees kept on increasing. And the more university fees keep on increasing, it means the higher the black tax is going to be. Because remember, some of them have to pay study loans when they finish studying. You know, um, at the same time, you find that, you know, the loan rates also keep on increasing um, and cost of living becomes too high. While all that is happening, your salary is not increasing. Then that is one of the things that actually causes more of a burden to people. The third thing is that black tax should be argued in tandem to the history or historical systems and the way in which the systems of the past shape the system of the current. And also, we need to be able to think about how do we project the history of the future in case things do not change. And the fourth thing and last thing in this particular you know, um, argument is that black tax should, oh, sorry, black tax speaks more you know, for the black experiences and does not speak for white experiences. This is for uh, particularly those who might say, but some of the things that you mentioned here are things that are experienced by white people. I don't think in the context of South Africa, we can actually argue the same in how apartheid has actually affected people. This is not, I'm not arguing that there's no white people who are not affected, but again, if you understand issues of systemic, you know, and structural racism and so on and so forth, and understand the zone of being and the zone of non-being, you'll be able to see where I'm trying to drive with the point that black text in this context is only reflective of the black experience. But again, I mean, I don't want to leave you just like that. I want to leave you with, you know, a couple of few points, maybe about four points, which I actually drew from a book which was written by Nick Mklongo titled Black Text. And it questions whether is it Ubuntu or is it, sorry, is it a burden or is it Ubuntu? Now, I'm not reviewing Nick and I'm not trying to give Nick much more space. But I loved a few of his ideas that he basically raised and um, I think these ideas can help some people and great number of people perhaps, but for some it might be a challenge. But for some, I mean, it's a case to try things out. And with this points, four of them is to sort of say those who are bound by black text, perhaps trying out this different kind of tactics, maybe it might be helpful in your situation or it's not helpful in your situation. I just want to leave you on a positive note than leaving you sort of kind of like you know, more stressed and to say, okay, so you said this, but what's the way forward? These aren't necessarily my ideas. This actually came from Nick, but Nick in, in, in his book on the section that he wrote, he specifies that these are ideas also that came from people he interacted with. It does not mean these are particularly his points. So point number one, just very quickly, be honest about your earnings with your family and minimize what you can handle than trying to be sort of a superman or superwoman. So I'm sort of paraphrasing most of the things here. Um, I think this is a good point to be honest with your family, even though with some families it might help, it might work to be honest, but with some it might not work because, you know, even some families have got greed and have got insensitivity. But at least be honest and be specific about what you can be able to handle and what you cannot be able to handle than trying to be a superman or superwoman. The second point Think about a second source of income. So basically, these second source of income, I think, uh, me sort of now analyzing it further, it can help you sort of address the issue of black tax. And then you use your first source of income to sort of help yourself and advance yourself in whatever way possible. The third one, give a fixed amount of money 
to your mom or any responsible person in the family and have that person to be the main focal point where everybody who needs something in the family, they go to that person than necessarily coming to you. And yes, in some family, this might cause more conflicts. But at the same time, this might also help you so that you're not depressed and stressed each and every time by people coming to you and asking for money that you may not even have and you wouldn't even know how to help them. And the fourth one, try building family wealth. This is the hardest, considering the fact that I've already mentioned many things. But a part of this being the hardest in the context of you know what I've mentioned in terms of getting loans, how difficult it is, or in the context of systemic or structural racism and so on and so forth. I think we also need, which this might be maybe a fifth point that I'll chip in, we may need to also think carefully about our ways of living in South Africa. South Africa has a culture, a consumptionist culture, and has sort of a grooving kind of culture. Some people survive, some people do not survive. And perhaps this is how people deal with their traumas, you know, and which is another aspect that I'm sort of not touching here on how this financial burden sort of have specific traumas for different kind of people. But we've got a very much consumptionist culture. We love to impress people. We love to stand out. You find a job today and then already the next end of the month you're at the garage getting a new car that is going to be difficult for you to even afford because you have to show people that I've made it. I mean, that kind of life sometimes is very much demanding and it can be hard to be sustained. So we need to be very true to ourselves about also how do we tackle those so that we can work towards you know building family wealth in whatever way possible, even though the system is fighting against, you know, the black population in also many different ways. But um, to add up on point four, so part of family wealth might actually mean you having to sort of liberate one family member at a time, you know, opening up small businesses for them so that they stop coming to you asking for money every now and then. But again, this might work for some and it might not work for others simply because, most of our families are still full of people who are too entitled. They don't want to be told. They don't want to listen to anyone. And this is where also part of the traumas come from. Look, this can be argued until kingdom come. There could be so many back and forth, but that's black text in the context of South Africa. Do not argue. It just is a standalone. It has to speak to the past and it has to speak to the now so that we are able to sort of project the future. I don't know how black text will look like in Nigeria. I don't know how it will look like in Argentina if there ever is. I don't know how it will look like for those who feel like you know, black text also, the principles are apparent in white community, even though it might not be called black text. I'm not sort of going to speak on those contexts, but people can adopt black text and see how it best fits in their context. But for those who are critics of black text, I'd say think more about way it also emerged than criticizing black text because you heard someone you dislike in your context using black text and you feel like it doesn't fit in. Therefore, it's a useless theory. It definitely isn't. Thanks for tuning in. And have a good one. I'm out.